You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 9, God's Selection of Israel. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then, at the place where they were told, You are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. 
And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Hey, the other night I was sitting over here um, at Alpha on Wednesday night. Some of you were there. And we, we were, after Alpha had finished, we were chatting. Well, some of us were chatting. Well, two of us were chatting. It was Rebecca and Adam, and they were talking about Marv, the Marvel Universe. And, it just, and I was sitting there just observing for an hour. <laughs> and by the end of it, I just thought, wow, it feels good not to be a massive nerd. And then I remembered, oh, actually, I am a massive nerd. Um, theological nerd, yes, but also a massive nerd when it comes to fantasy literature. And um, it does enable me to look down on people who are obsessed with movies, because, you know, that's, that's pretty base-level stuff. But when it comes to literature, when it comes to what we used to do back in my day, reading, um, I, I'm a nerd, and, and I grew up um, as a nerd. I, 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 was, I was constantly opening my eyes to the world of, of Tolkien and Lewis and Feast and Eddings and these guys who would, who would paint pictures in their novels of worlds that I would just immerse myself in. It's a great gift to be able to, to use that, that, that artistic creativity to, to literally make something out of nothing. It's very godlike in that way. It's, it's creation ex nihilo. It's, it's creating a, a space for people to enter into and to lose, lose themselves in. And so that's what I did, book after book after book, and rereading book after book of these fantastic worlds, worlds of hobbits and elves and, and dwarves. And, and, and the thing I liked about these books is that they tell the great story of good versus evil. There's a very predictable um, 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 narrative of, um, of the good being threatened by the, the evil, of, of the light being threatened by the darkness, but, but by light um, overcoming darkness in the end. And um, that's the journey that draws us in. That's the, that's the thing that we understand. It's part of the reason why I think I received the gospel, because the gospel tells the true story. It's the true myth, as, as Tolkien said, of good overcoming evil. And um, and so I like that, and I like the predictability of that victory. And then in 2002, I came across something that disrupted me. 2002, I first picked up a book that had been out for a few years called A Game of Thrones. And um, some of you have watched the TV show, and that's why we're having confession later on, so that you can, you can just confess that sin. And so I came across this book, and I read it, and it was quite predictable in, in the way that the author painted the picture of this world, and like all good fantasy worlds, it's kind of self-sufficient and believable, and um, you can kind of map it out, the geography in your mind. But then I, I became acquainted with this, these characters, and, and, and particularly the, the character who I thought was going to be the main protagonist, and then all of a sudden, as I'm getting into the story, that guy gets killed, dead. And this was something I wasn't used to, right? The good guys are meant to prevail and win in the end. Like, there's collateral damage along the way, but at least the, 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 kind of the main point of these stories is that good wins in the end. And this was totally unsettling. And then as I read on through four and five and six books, 
before I became so disrupted and um, so um, troubled by these books that I just stopped reading them, um, that um, before I got there, I was like, who is this guy? Who is this author who is tormenting me like this? I, I had an idea of the way that things should go, and they were, it was on a trajectory of good overcoming evil, and then he was messing with this. That was in 2002. At the same time, I was reading another book for the first time. It's called The Book of Romans. And I couldn't help but think at the time that there is a bit of a correlation between the two. Like, the book of Romans is on this trajectory, on the way up from Romans 1 and 2 and 3, sin and brokenness and death. Then we get to 8, and it's like what should be, in my mind, the crescendo, right? The, like, this would be a good place to finish. Romans 8, you've, you guys were here, right? I wasn't. But I think you were here, most of you were here, when we went through Romans 8. Just the, the beauty of the gospel in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through him, right? And you get this beautiful golden chain of salvation that just demonstrates God's love and his, his purpose in redemption and, and, and the fact that he, um, that, that he sees it through from start to finish. So if I'm Paul's agent at the publishing company, I'm telling him, let's finish there. That's a good place to quit. And yet he doesn't, and he totally, in Romans 9, at least in my experience, pulls the rug out from under our feet. It gets all Game of Thrones. Because in Romans 9, if you were listening, there are words like wrath and hate and curse. Words like election. These words that are really unsettling and unnerving. And, 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 and in reading it, you've got to think, is is the author of this, not just this book, but the author of this story of salvation, is he just messing with us? Like, can he be trusted? Or is he kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? We, we can't trust him. We say over and over again at this church that it's important for us to know the big picture of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible, right? And, 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 and what we try and tell you is that from the beginning, the story of the Bible is a story of salvation. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God winning a people for himself. And that this story is, is thread throughout the Bible, even in the midst of threats and suffering, God maintains this story. So you see in Genesis 3, right from the beginning, right, right from the point where Satan tempts Eve and, and Adam and they fall, God comes along and in Genesis 3, it's called the first gospel, he says, yes, this has happened. Yes, this will cause great suffering, but I am going to, out of these broken, fallen people, I, out of their seed, out of their, their, their generations, I'm going to bring a redeemer. There's going to be a man who comes, who crushes the head of the serpent, who undoes all of that chaos that he has brought about. So that's right in the, the, like the third page of your Bible. And then the rest of your Bible is God fulfilling that promise protecting his people who are the keepers of that promise. So in Genesis 12, he comes to a guy named Abram, this, this, this pagan guy living out in the woods, and he says to him, this is, you're going to be the father of this nation. You're going to be the father of this nation that's going to bless the world, through whom the Redeemer is going to come, who's going to overcome 
chaos and, and bring about redemption and restoration. And even though that promise is under threat constantly, first of all by him and his wife being too old to have children, through all kinds of, of threats, my, my, Renee and, and my, uh, my wife and my daughter the other day read um, Esther together. Right, another situation where, where God's promise is under threat because his people are under threat. The story of him um, of protecting his and securing his promise. Right? So right throughout the Bible you have this thread of God honouring his promise to his people and protecting his covenant promises. To the point where Paul says in, in, in this passage, in, in verse 4 to 5, he kind of sums it up in these glowing terms. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This, is, this great... Um, this, this, this great summary of how God has been working through these people and giving them all of these great blessings, promises, covenants, and that, that these people themselves are the people whom Jesus came to, that he actually, God, became them. God became flesh. God became an Israelite. So they have these, these great benefits of being God's people. But this chapter is all about a big problem. And it's potentially a catastrophic problem, a fatal problem for God, for our understanding of who he is. It threatens to totally throw everything out of whack. And the problem is this, if all of that is true, if, if all of that history from Genesis 3 or even before the foundation of the world up until this point, if all of that is part of God's plan, and these people are the covenant people carrying the promises of God, then why are so many of them rejecting the Messiah? Remember, Paul's writing to the Roman church. Scholars tell us about 50% Gentiles, 50% Jews. So there are Jews there in the church who have received the good news, but there are many, many, many who haven't. So the question is, has God's promise failed? If Israel is rejecting Jesus... If Israel is rejecting redemption, then what about all the promises of God from Genesis 3 up until this point? Does it mean that his promises have failed? Unless we kind of dumb down the reality of the situation, just listen to Paul's words. This will put it in perspective for us. It says, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not making it up. This is not just for effect. I speak the truth. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he gets the situation, right? His people are rejecting their only redemption. And he is so grieved by this. He is so passionate that his people would come to know Jesus that he says, I'm willing to go to hell if it means that they will believe. I don't know if anyone in this room could say that legitimately. 
But that's how, how deeply he feels the reality of their reje- rejection. John says it another way in John 1. He says, He came, Jesus came, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came as a man to men, but he was rejected. He came as a Jew to the Jews, but they rejected him. And all of this throws into doubt whether God is able to keep his promises to his people. This past year, I've had two good friends who are good men um, have their marriages fail to the point where they're not married anymore. And I see that and live that and experience that and it scares me. Right, because if they, if they can experience that, then maybe I can experience that. If the promises that he and her made to one another on that day, the vows they made, the covenant they made, if that can fail, then maybe it can fail for me. And that, that's what's going on here. That's the question. Like, if God's promise, if his covenant to his people can fail, then maybe his covenant with me can fail. How can I trust that all of his promises will be kept? That's what's on the line, nothing less. So has God's promise failed? Has he disavowed his vows? Let's read verse 6, and six 7, and 8. Paul says, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul's point is this, God's promise to Israel hasn't failed because Israel is not comprised simply of those who are born into Israel. It's comprised of everyone who would receive the Messiah as Lord and Saviour. In other words, it's not by race that someone becomes a member of the people of Israel, but it's by grace that we become Israelites. He says to that church in Rome, comprised of Jews by heritage and Gentiles, he says, all of you are the true Israel. The true Israel is not by physical descent, but by spiritual adoption. And so this is why it unsettles me a little bit when anyone has a a big preoccupation with the nation of Israel, with that geographical state, right? The the dirt that it's made up by. With Paul's point is, it's not about that. Israel is wherever God's people are gathered. It's not by race, but by grace. And so let's go back to that John 1 passage, right? So from verse 11, he says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him yet. That's the whole point of this chapter, yet. 
To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that right to that uh, national heritage, that right to that citizenship of Israel is given to all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name. They are the children of God. Verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So if you're here today, you love Jesus, you've received what he's done for you, you are Abraham's child. In a more profound way than someone who's born a Jew, someone who's been circumcised, who has the outward appearance. So Paul wants us to know emphatically God's promise hasn't failed. Yes, it's true that many of his people have turned away from him, but it's not because his promise has failed. It's because his people are not comprised of that nation. They're comprised of all who believe. So God hasn't failed. And then once we've sort of established that, I think to, to myself, I don't know if this is the way your heart works, but I, I think, well, yeah, I, I believe that. That's what, that's what I, I hope in, that God's promises don't fail, that he's powerful, not just powerful, but good, that he does honour his promises, his covenants, his vows. That's good and that's true. But what about me? Like, I, I look at myself and I think, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like, day to day, hour to hour, prone to wander. Am I trustworthy? Am I worthy? Like, do I meet the criteria of a person of Israel? Do I meet the criteria to be able to receive God's promises? On Friday, I, um, I went to a second-hand car dealership for my sins, and um, we've we kind of made it for the last 18 months on one car between Renee and I, and um, I've now got six skateboards which have done the job to get me around. But I also came to the conclusion that I'm 37 years old and I probably need a grown-up mode of transport. So we went to this car dealership and, um, yeah, I, I used to work at a second-hand car dealership before, like when we first got married, and so I know what goes on there. Right? It's like Game of Thrones. It's just... And so I was kind of I was apprehensive, together with the fact that if, if I have to spend more than $2.50 at once, I get nervous and, like, sweaty. All right? So this was more than that, to buy a second-hand car. And um, the car that I really wanted, which I've wanted since I was a little boy, all right, it's, this, um, it's 11 years old now. And so I was like, 11, 11 years is a pretty long time. There could, there's a lot that could go wrong. I did my research. I found out what could go wrong. And then so... We were there for three hours because I was giving it the full treatment, like the 150-point check. I was underneath hitting stuff, you know, um, doing stuff to make them think that I knew what I was doing. And 
And the truth is that my, my criteria for making that purchase was extensive and it was profound and if that car didn't meet my criteria then I wasn't going to buy it. In the end I did buy it and I'm going to get it in the next week and I'm looking forward to it. But it was, it was touch and go. I wasn't just going to roll in and make the purchase without first going through my checklist. Now, the question is, in God's choosing of us, what is his criteria? This is something that we should know. We've got to improve our chances. Make sure we're up to scratch, right? If there's a flat tire, if there's a broken part, we need to be able to know what those things are so that we can be chosen. So I know what your kind of list is, what you think God's list is comprised of. Like, what is God's criteria for choosing us is the question. You guys got any ideas? Because I'm filling out my list. Have you been listening up to this point? Okay. Any ideas? Broken, being broken. Gotcha. Trust in Jesus, what he's done for us. A heart for God. Repentance. It's a pretty good list. Some of you who didn't offer anything, didn't offer anything because you knew that it was one of those trick questions that the preacher sometimes asks you, just to drag you in and then make you an example. The truth is that all of those things that you offered as criteria for God's choosing of us are good things and necessary things. But none of them are part of God's criteria for choosing us. Why? Because God doesn't have any criteria. There simply isn't any checklist that he has when he comes to choosing for himself a people to love, to save, to redeem. Now this is Paul's big point here. I don't want us to miss it. He wants us to know clearly that God's choosing of us is a result of pure grace, unconditional love. So he says in verse 10 to 13, all right, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, not by criteria, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is, it is, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What he wants us to know very clearly is that God does not have a criteria. In fact, if he had one, neither Jacob nor Esau would have been chosen. Why? Jacob, he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a real piece of work. God's election of him was not based on anything he had done. In fact, before they were even born, 
that decision was made. There is no criteria. Now let me just hit one thing before we move on. This is a little bit of a digression, but we read the words and they're unsettling. When he, he quotes God saying, Esau I loved, uh, sorry, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What we need to know there is there's a, there's a, a cultural disconnect here. There's this this um, phraseology of, of hatred in the Hebrew is not the same thing as, as we understand it as in English. So to hate in this context is not to hate as we would know it. It's to, it's to demonstrate clear and decisive preference for one thing over another. So Jesus says, in I think it's Luke 14, he says, uh, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and father. Uh, he believes in the commandment to love and honour your mother and father. His point is that you must demonstrate clear and decisive preference for him over all earthly loves. So that's what's going on here. He's, Paul's saying this was a clear, decisive choice by God and it wasn't determined by any criteria. So let's go back to that John 1 passage again, all right? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. There is no criteria. This is God's free, unconditional love. So I had um, coffee after the last service, and a, a lady came to me, and I love it when people do this, because it means they were listening. She came to me and said, you said that there was no criteria. But that passage in John said that it was those who received him who were given the right to become children of God. So at least there is some criteria, like the receiving is the criteria. And what I wanted her to be able to see, and what I hope you see as we go through the book of Romans, is that that receiving is not criteria, it is the result. That receiving is not the cause, but the result. Do you get that? So John says in 1 John 4, we love him because he loved us first. We received him because we were born of God. Now if at this point you are thinking to yourself, this is really unfair. Like what he's just described there, if this is the way God works, then that is unfair. If, you, if you're thinking that to yourself right now, then you are on point. You have followed his logic perfectly. And so he's going to speak to you now, right? Stay with me. Verse 14 to 16, he says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
It's mercy. So if we want to make this about justice and fairness, by nature we do that, especially as Australians, right? That's our thing. If we want to make this about a fair go, then here's the result. Everyone in this room, in this town, in this city, in this world, dead, condemned, gone. If we want to make it about justice, then Jesus in heaven forever, the rest of us, gone forever. But if it's about mercy, then God is able to extend to undeserving people his unmerited grace. That's what grace is. It is unfair. It is unmerited. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, on criteria or merit, but on God's mercy. So here's where we find ourselves at the end of Romans 9. We find ourselves in this situation. The bottom line is this. Without God's electing love, everyone goes to hell. And in his mercy, according to his unfathomable wisdom, he has called for himself a people to be loved. A people to be lavished with mercy and grace. His promises never fail, and his electing love is not based on any criteria. And so here's where I want this to leave us. And I don't mean right away, because the first time I read this, I was really shocked and unnerved and unsure about, is this the God that I really love? Is this the one that I trust in? It, it really rocked me. And for a long time, I wrestled with this whole idea and I just kept coming up against it all of the time and it was Romans 9 in the end that kind of persuaded me of the truth of it but then being persuaded of the truth of it isn't the same thing as loving it and that takes time. And so I want us as a church to be able to come to love these doctrines of grace as they're known. But I know that it takes time to get there. So here's what I want. I want us as a church to be able to, to have enough humility to receive this as God's good, righteous word and then ask his spirit to work in us and grow in us a love for it and a trust of it. Here's one of the things that needs to happen in order for that to happen. One of the things that needs to happen is we have to give up thinking that we are sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient We have to give up thinking that we know everything or can even one day know everything. We need to be able to live with a sense of ambiguity that I trust this, but I don't understand all of it. This section, Romans 9 to 11, is a section we're going to be working through for the next couple of weeks, and all of it is difficult. But here's the crucial thing. I want us to be able to come to the point that Paul comes to at the end of it. 
having gone through all of this difficult stuff about mercy and, 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 and wrath and, and God's electing love, he comes to the end of it, and, and in, in chapter 11, verse 33, this is what he says. This is all that he's got left. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I believe that understanding this theology of God's electing love, the fruit of it should be a people who are just overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise. That God would extend mercy to me, undeserving me, unlovable me. That he would do so, so comprehensively that my my standing before him is never in doubt. That it's not dependent on how I feel or what I do. That for, for, for some of you this morning who may be here and haven't yet received God's grace and forgiveness and redemption, to know that there isn't a criteria that I have to meet to know that I can be the most, the, the most unloved, neglected, beaten up old car in the dealership and God still chooses me out of his free, merciful grace. It should give us great encouragement. It should bring to mind people like, for me, it's, it's my younger siblings, people who I just, I can never see becoming Christians. And looking at their kind of resume, there's no way that God would ever love them. And if it was down to their choice of him, they would never choose him. To be able to overcome all of that by, in the knowledge that God loves the unlovable, that he saves the unsavable, should lead us to praise and hope. And so I'm going to pray that that's true of us. If you want that to be true of us and true of you, then join with me as we pray. Father, through all of this, I, I so don't want us to be just puffed up in our knowledge, swelled up in our theological acumen. Lord, I want us to be overwhelmed with gratitude thanksgiving I want us to be heartbroken for the lost I want us to be grieved like Paul is grieved and I want us to be thankful like he is thankful I pray that as we continue through this section that is sometimes difficult sometimes confusing sometimes offensive Pray that you would bring us through this with a greater appreciation for who you are and what you've done. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.